we are on our third lesson on the Minor Prophets. So if you have a Bible, start trying to find Joel. It's uh, right after Hosea. That helps. <laughs> Before Amos. <laughs> right in there. <laughs> or you can go to the index up front of the table of content and find uh, that way. Uh, Nick did a great job co- covering Hosea. Uh, he really stepped into my world where he had more notes than minutes uh, in his time, and, but uh, did a great job of bringing things together there last week. Uh, as, as, we told them, as we talked about in the very first time that we uh, addressed the Minor Prophets, and we had actually a survey of the entire timeline of the Old Testament, you know, the CC kind of families loved the timelines on the, on the, on the board, and um, we're... The, the order that the prophets are in the Bible are not the, the historical order. It doesn't mean that Hosea is first and then Joel and then Amos and so on. But in our series, we're covering them in the canonical order. There is an order that they are in the Bible. That's why we're covering Joel today. Joel is one of those short books that seems super long. Uh, <laughs> it's, three, it's only three chapters long, but you read it. It takes a bit of time and work to get through it. It's not the kind of book that you read really it's, it's no First Chronicles 1 through 9, but uh, it takes a bit of work to read through the book of Joel. Uh, the, 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 his name means Yah is God, or, or Yahweh is God. It's a short version of the covenantal name of God uh, there. Um, and it's a, he's a prophet to Judah, and he either prophesied at the end of the 5th century B.C., so the 400s, the low 400s, or in the mid-9th century B.C., in the 800s. And there's some disp- dispute of the date. Uh, most people think that he is in the 400s. Uh, but we're going to take a look at this here in a, in a second. Uh, there's not a lot about him in the book. If you look at the very first verse, it just tells us that his name is Joel. And he's the son of Pethuel. That's all, that's all the reference to himself in, in the book. And that's very common to, in a lot of these minor prophets, you know, in the major prophets. And remember that major and minor has, not, it's not, has nothing to do with importance. It's just the size. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations being the major prophets. And then these other 12 being the minor prophets. In the major prophets, we find a lot about the prophets themselves. Now we read Daniel and you find a lot about Daniel. Isaiah, we have this call, and so on. Same with Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But in the Minor Prophets, really, usually it's just the first verse. The Jonah is, is an exception. We find a lot about Jonah in Jonah. And, uh, but most of them just have this first verse, and that's all we know about Joel. Otherwise, he's unknown. Uh, scholars don't dispute the authorship. There's no reason to think that somebody else wrote it or that it was not written as a book to begin with or as one unit. So there's no dispute there. But as I said, the date of the book is not specified, and there's a wide range of possibilities. It doesn't say, Joel the prophet wrote during the king, the reign of such and such king when this was happened. We don't find any of that in this book. Let me ask you this, though. Why is it important to try to figure out when a book was written? Why is it important, or is it important? If it is, then why is it important to figure out when a book of the Bible is written? Lewis. Okay, so it helps figure out the context in which the book was written. All 
right? What else? Yes. Right, so that you know what's exactly kind of similar, so they know what's going on around the, 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 the book. What else? Chris? Maybe like the prose or the mode of writing? Like, Say it again. Like the, the prose or like the mode of writing, like the style, and maybe that will help with the context as well. Okay, so that's a little different, right? Yes, the literary style helps with the context, so on, but not the date won't influence that. Is the text itself that will tell us that. If it's prose, poetry, if it's prophecy, the text itself will tell us, not, not when it was written. Maybe it would like help, because if it was under the date, maybe that was really common at that time to be like that category. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, but the, the, the style of the writing is the writing itself that tells us, not when it was written. So if it's prose, the text will be written in prose. If it's poetry, you have a meter text and so on. But I, I get what you're saying. Uh, one of the reasons is that it, figuring out when it was written, you can see what else in the Bible is written at the same time, helps you figure out how to interpret these things as well. Uh, the sequence in which things were written can be helpful in figuring out uh, the interpretation there. So we know that it was written after Jehoshaphat's reign. And you know Jehoshaphat, right? That was a king one of the good kings in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And we know it's written after Jehoshaphat's reign because in chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat had already existed. There's a, a valley already called by that name. So we know it has to be after the Jehoshaphat, uh, who reigned from 830. 3 B.C. to 848 B.C., so it has to be sometime after that. Some people say maybe perhaps during the kingdom of boy king Joash. Remember, Joash was one of those kings that came to power at 7 or 8 years old, and really somebody else ruled for him during that time. Also, as we try and figure out more about this book, we know that uh, there's references to captivity, Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, For behold, I in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So uh, whenever Joel was written, there was some captivity that went before them. There was some imprisonment of the people. And on top of that, in verse 6 of chapter 3, it, it talks about a people group uh, that we can date when they came into existence. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 3, also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks. So we know that the Greeks didn't uh, start their migration out of the islands into the mainland until 750 B.C. Uh, before then, they were of no consequence. So for them to be in the market for slaves, it has to be sometime quite a bit of time after that when they had established themselves as a power in uh, the mainland of what we call Greece today. So um, it's unlikely that it happened before any of that. And uh, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 4, it tells us, too, that it happened before uh, the destruction of Sidon 
by the Persians. In verse 4, it says, Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. So Sidon and Tyre are still, still powers, and they were destroyed in 345 B.C. So anywhere between 700 and 345 is a good time for the writing. Of, is that precise enough for you for the writing of the book? So that's uh, somewhere in there the book was written. But what else do we... What else do we know? Well, if you read the whole book, guess what you won't find? You won't find any king mentioned. No king of Israel, no king of the nations around them. What does that tell us? What, does that, what can that mean? That there is no king mentioned, neither of Israel, Judah, or the foreign nations. I'll say, tell you, it can, can mean three things. Well, either captivity or after the captivity, right? Because there is no king. What else? Yes, can be a king of no, of no consequence, so it's not worth mentioning. What, what is the third thing that can mean? Yeah, exactly, it can mean nothing. It just didn't want to say anything about the king, exactly. So those are the three things that the fact that there's no king uh, there. And so it doesn't help us much to figure out what, what Joel is meaning here. One thing we see, though, is that Judah and Israel is used interchangeably. Uh, even though he's a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, he uses Israel and Judah together. But that makes sense because the, Joel tends to be looking forward. Is a more of a scatological prophet looking at the coming of the Messiah and the judgment of God. And so for him to see Israel as a whole, as Judah and Israel together, makes sense uh, as he's looking forward to that. It's interesting, though, what enemies are listed. Let me, I'll, 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 we won't read the verse. Let me list the enemies of Israel that are listed, okay? And I want you to hear for which ones are not mentioned in this book, okay? Tyre and Sidon are mentioned. Philistia, the Greeks, Sheba, or the Sabians, Egypt, and Edom are the enemies mentioned. Okay. What enemies are not mentioned that uh, are super common in the Old Testament? In the Russia. Russia is not mentioned. But we know that Putin is behind everything. So just because not mentioned, don't, don't think that's not the case. Okay. <laughs> Sonia. Okay, so Assyria is not mentioned. Babylon is not mentioned. Persia is not mentioned. Well, who else? Two common enemies that are all besides these. Yes, but they're minor. <laughs> more bites. Philistines are. Yeah, that's the whole, everybody that lives in that land was. Uh, Syria and Rome. Those are the two common enemies in the Bible that are not mentioned uh, in, in this list. Which tells us that it's earlier, or that's later than Assyrians, later than the Babylonians. So it's probably good to think that Joel is written during the time after Israel came back from the exile. So very early, before Haggai, and before Zechariah, 
and before Malachi. But in that time frame, also, there's no idolatry mentioned at all in the book of Joel, which is consistent with the post-exilic. One thing that the captivity did for Israel, the Babylonian captivity, is that rid them of exterior idolatry. Now, they're still people, so they still had idolatrous hearts like we, you and I do. But as far as worshiping uh, different gods on the outside and statues and so on, the Babylonian captivity took that away from them. So when they come back to the land, there's no more, um, the, there's no more um, outward idolatry there. Now, why, why was this book written? Anybody who may have read through it has any idea what might have been the purpose of the writing of this book? To condemn Russia? Maybe. Let me suggest two, two purposes. Two key purposes here. One is to des- describe how destruction may lead to repentance. There's a lot of judgment described, a lot of destruction described in the book of Joel. But there is a purpose for that. This is judgment coming from God, and the purpose is to lead to repentance. Uh, Most of the prophets, not all, but the vast majority, always ends with a positive message. Hosea chapter 1 through 11 is judgment, judgment, judgment. 1 through 13 and 14 is a message of of reconciliation and blessings. The same with Joel. Joel is all about destruction, but this destruction has a purpose. It's going to lead to the repentance of God's people. And then the other purpose is to prepare the way for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Joel is looking to that day which the Spirit is going to come and empower the church the disciple, uh, the nations there. So in the first part of the book, Judah is destroyed by a locust invasion. And you think, oh, what does that mean? Does the locust stand for something? It does. For these little animals with wings, little insects with wings that come and eat everything when they come. That's what the locust is. Literal. So Joel is taking advantage of actual, uh, something that happened at the time. There is a plague of locusts. And the fields are destroyed. And he says, see that? Well, let me use that to teach you something. So in chapter 1, when he speaks about all those locusts and so on, he is talking about something that actually happened and is trying to use that to show how the Lord also brings judgment upon his people because of sins that they have committed. And then there's a call for fasting and repentance. And then the, parts, the second part of the, the, the book foreshadows the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which the initial fulfillment of that, of that happened on the day of Pentecost. If you remember, Joe 2 was actually the text that Peter used to preach at Pentecost. At least he said, this is what you're seeing today is a fulfillment of what you read in Joel chapter 2. And he quotes a, a, a Big part of Joel chapter 2 there in Acts chapter 2. Any questions so far? All right, so the, the invasion of the locusts in chapter, if you look at chapter 1 of Joel, 
Look at verse 4. It says, What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And you read this, and we can't really relate to it, but in farming communities, that would be very relatable. When there's a locust plate that comes in and lands on your, on your crop, they're going, only going to leave when everything is destroyed, and great famine then should follow from that, because there's no food. There's no, no, nothing to sell, nothing to eat there. And that's the picture that... Uh, Joel is using here that the invasion of locusts has led to a severe famine throughout the entire nation. And then Joel uses this situation to give the people of Judah a strong prophetic warning. And he says that unless they wholeheartedly and immediately repent, enemy armies will come destroy their land, just as the locusts did. They're going to come and destroy the land. And then Joel exhorts the priests and the people to fast, to be humble, to seek forgiveness from God. If they do that, spiritual blessings will come to the nation. However, the judgment of the Lord is still coming. If you look at chapter 2, and if you look at uh, verse twenty. Sorry, I wrote the wrong verse down. Now I have to find it. Okay, if you look at verse 30, 28, 29, Peter quotes, and he quotes verse 30 as well and says, And I will show wonders in the heavens, in the earth, blood and fire and pillars and smoke of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great day great and awesome day of the Lord. It's interesting that Peter doesn't quote that last clause when he quotes Joel. And uh, the idea is that that's still coming. That's not something that happened at Pentecost. This great day of judgment is still coming in the future. And Joel is preparing the people for, for that, that day uh, of judgment that is still to come. So we live now in this time in which um, Joel was preparing the people of God for, the time in which we're waiting for that great day of the Lord, the great day of judgment when the Lord returns. Now, when you look at the, uh, the Old Testament prophets, when they looked at the coming of Jesus Christ, when they looked at the coming of the Messiah, they looked at the Messiah's ministry as a whole. They didn't necessarily differentiate between the first coming or the second coming. He didn't, they didn't differentiate between the suffering and the uh, exaltation. They just saw it as a whole. The whole, everything Christ did was one, one thing. And uh, so when Joel talks about the great day of the Lord is still coming, he's talking about this day that God is going to be established by the first coming of the Lord and fulfilled at his second coming. And that's what we are living in, this period in which we're waiting for that great day of judgment that Joel has um, prophesied that, that it is coming. Does it make sense? Any questions on that? Yes. Yes. 
in chapter 2 or verse 2 it talks about the day of the Lord as if it's coming soon mm -hmm. and that's that's a common thing that a lot of um, eschatologists like to, to dwell on and I was just wondering um, what that really means he said the day of the Lord is at hand I shouldn't say yes yeah so yeah. It sounds like it's real close. Right. To every generation. So, and, and here specifically, the day of the Lord is it's actually instituted by the coming of Christ. Okay. Right? And in the big scheme of things, if, if, if he is prophesying the 400s, it's way closer than it was when Abraham is said to have seen the day of Christ and rejoiced in it. Um. So there's some dispute as whether at hand means closing time or closing presence. That, uh, you know, for example, when Jesus says, we repent for the kingdom of the Lord is at hand, right? Um, some say, that, well, he means that the, the, the kingdom of the Lord is at hand is close to you because the king is right there. Yeah. So there, there's that, not necessarily time, but proximity. In, in space. But there is, in the scriptures, there's imminent idea that Christ is going to come back, right? That, 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 okay, that, so that the judgment is going Christ to... There? I think so. Okay. That the book of Joel, when the day of the Lord is talking about is the, the, when Christ comes, but not just the first coming, the entire ministry of Christ, okay. Okay. including the second... Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think the prophets say that. So, and that's why we have to be careful when we talk about time and try to be super precise, oh, it says a day, um, often when the singular is used, the day in, in prophecies like this, is not necessarily talking about a 24-hour period, but a, 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 uh, a time in which this is going to be displayed. Now, when the plural is used, tend to be more literal than when the singular day is used. Okay. Any other questions before we continue? We're almost done. Since Nick went over time, I'll go short tonight. <laughs> so the, the primary takeaway, if nothing of this made sense, and, and you go home and you read Joel, okay, the primary takeaway for us is this. Repentance is crucial. Because that's what Joel is calling, calling God's people to repentance. Repentance is crucial. If we do not repent of our sins, we're guaranteed to be subject to God's severe judgment. Uh, the people of, uh, of, the, of Joel's time was, were thinking, you know what, I can just trust in my own goodness, I can follow, I can be a good boy, a good, boy, a good girl, and, and that's going to be great, and the Lord's going to bless that, and I don't have to worry about that. But the point that Joel makes is that, no, we can't. We can't trust our own goodness or possessions for our salvation. We can only trust in the Lord. So he calls us to repentance. And all of us are in need of repentance. Uh, it doesn't matter who we are, we are in need of repentance. Whether we even, those that have been um, saved by the Lord is in, are in need of repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. That's, that's where it is. Um, when people come to counseling and they... They're willing to say, yes, I'm a sinner, and they talk about it in the abstract way. But they can't think of actual ways they've sinned. 
usually means that they don't really think of themselves as sinners, as people who are able to sin against God. And we as, as Christians need to live a life that's constantly in repentance. Maybe I'm unusual. If I, if I, I gave somebody uh, not too long ago uh, homework, and, and, and he was supposed to think of three ways in which he concretely sinned in the last seven days. Three, three things, three specifics. I did this, or I did that, and this person could not figure out. In the period of seven days, he could not think of three ways in which he had sinned against the Lord. Um, if that's where you are, there's a problem there. Because I guarantee you that's an impossibility to go seven days without sinning in thought or word or, or deed, in belief, in attitude against the Lord. That doesn't, unless your name is Jesus, that doesn't happen. So, if nothing else you get from Joel, get this. Joel calls us to repent. To repent from our sins if you're not a believer and turn to the Lord. But to live a life of repentance as followers of Jesus Christ. That we, every day, to live in repentance. We're not called to perfection. We're not going to reach perfection. At least not till we're dead or the resurrection. We're called to live a life of repentance. As, as we serve the Lord. And let Joel, if nothing else, be um, that, give you that, that warning, that call in your life. Any questions or comments before we close? All right, so let's pray together. Father heaven, pray that the, uh, in, through the foolishness of the, uh, the message uh, proclaimed tonight, that you would uh, cause us to be more like you. We pray to help us live a life of repentance. We pray that we would um, be grabbing onto Christ and not be holding to anything that's in us as far as being justified in your sight. We pray that our goodness would not be something that we offer to you, but simply just cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray to dismiss us with your blessings tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.